You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Well, good morning. They uh, took the injured step and gave me the microphone this morning. So I think it's because of the topic, which you see there on the screen, marriage, divorce, and the single life. We are uh, continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, which um, we're beginning to see that Paul is bringing uh, a wisdom, a kind of a gospel wisdom to a very worldly community. And uh, a number of New Christians, converted Christians out of that community, brought a lot of their junk in with them. And Paul is trying to tell them that, no, we do things differently here because we want to create something better, a better community. Oh, thank you. You know, I just got to give it up for Gianna. I mean, how old is she, like four? Like, Gina's away, right? So we're all, oh, Gina's away. What's going to happen? But we got to cover. She's got to cover. So, amen. Good for her. Um, where was I? Okay, First Corinthians, right? So, uh, hashtag wisdom, that's our topic for these, uh, these few weeks. Um, and, and God's, you know, Paul is bringing kind of a, a, a gospel wisdom, a new wisdom. Wisdom we kind of think about as time-tested, you know, uh, sayings handed down from our forefathers, traditional stuff, you know, stuff we've heard growing up, kind of Old Testament-style wisdom, right? Proverbs and... Psalms and Ecclesiastes, things like that. But Paul's saying, no, this is a new wisdom. This isn't old school wisdom. This is a new wisdom. I want to teach you something new. I want to build a community based on this new wisdom. That, that Because our life has changed because of the gospel. It's absolutely turned upside down. And so Paul is trying to communicate with this young church who's got a lot of problems uh, and a lot of people who are sinners, kind of like our church, and uh, so maybe this will apply. Let's see. Let's get into it. See what happens. So I want to talk just a, just a minute, you know, this gospel-centered community. Um, Paul, Paul, again, and I, I hope I've made that clear, that what Paul is doing here, we're going to talk a lot about sin today. We're going to talk a lot about sex today. We're going to talk about some controversial stuff. <laughs> Easy. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about some controversial stuff that, uh, like, uh, divorce and remarriage, and uh, I certainly don't mean to be insensitive um, to anybody who's been through those challenging times. Um, things happen, right? Stuff just happens, and we can't always help it. Um, but hopefully you'll see that God, what, what Paul is doing here is he's trying to communicate God's desire to not just condemn sin, but to build a, a gospel alternative, a community that's different, that's a light on a hill, that's a city uh, you know, that's attractive, that's drawing people in to God's love. And so the first few chapters, we, Mark talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, were all about uh, who our allegiance is to. That we're not meant to follow Paul or Apollos or men, but we're meant to follow Christ. That uh, Christ is the head of the church, and he's our standard. He's our one we follow. Not to say that Paul didn't have authority as an apostle there and the planter of the church, um, but, but we follow God. And so, you know, I love our church because we have a lot of speakers get up. We have a lot of leaders, people in the full-time, people, volunteers. Um, And so all of those voices come together and help us as a group follow God better. Um, So that's that's what Paul's doing here. Um, One of the things that he's really got to help this young church with is to rebuild their view of sex 
and, in a broader sense, sin. Um, they lived in a culture we've talked about in the last few weeks that was uh, just horribly worldly and secular. Um, it, was the, it was a city known, even among an ancient, debauched Roman world, <laughs> for its sin. You know, we've compared it to Las Vegas. I think you can compare it to just about any city and probably most towns in terms of sin being sin. But the first thing I want to do, so Paul, we're going to get to, we're going to, we're going to look at chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 7 is, the, is kind of where the title comes from, um, the, the title of the lesson where we talk about marriage and divorce. But Paul sets that up with a couple of ideas that I want to cover from chapter 5 and chapter 6. So let's look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Wow. Wow. I mean, wow, it's happening in the church, right? Maybe you're reacting to that. You're like, what? You know, incest essentially in the church, tolerated and proud. And then but maybe what's more scary is maybe we're not reacting to it. Maybe we're reacting to the fact that Paul's got an attitude. Paul's got an edge. You know, because we get desensitized to sin, right? We live in a society where we see images, we watch movies, we get inundated with advertisements, and then we get challenged in our core convictions to be tolerant and open-minded and progressive in our thinking. And so it rubs us wrong, maybe some of us, that Paul's got an edge here. And that Paul says, no, we're meant to be different. The church is meant to be different. Not judgmental, but different. And so Paul is drawing this hard line here. And he's telling the church that instead of being proud at their, their moral tolerance that they should have put this guy out of the fellowship, hopefully to get him restored to his relationship with God, not to just kick him to the curb, but to help him. And we struggle with that sometimes. We wonder, what's the church doing in my business? You know, does, does, does Paul, does the leadership of the church really have the right to tell me how to live? And Paul would say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, if you want to be part of the church, yeah, you don't have to be part of the church. You can attend and not be part of the church. You can go live your life and read the Bible and listen to things uh, online or whatever. But if you want to be part of our community, this gospel community, this alternate city that we're building to be a light to the world, then, yeah, we have some expectations. And we got to get comfortable with that. Right. There is a point in our life where we were probably comfortable with that. When we were studying the Bible, I remember studying the Bible and going through the list of sins that are in the Bible and realizing that I had no clue what God wanted for my life and I'd blown it in so many ways. I was really humble. I was really ready to hear, Andy, you've got to change this. Andy, you've got to stop doing that. And I, I welcomed it, right? I loved it. I was, I was like, yeah, I, my life's got to turn around. I want something better. But then as we go a little bit along in life, we started thinking, I got this. Bro, get out of my business. I got this. This, I don't want to tell you. I mean, we've had, we still, we all struggle with it, right? And some more than others. But let me just encourage you. Paul says, yeah, we want to be different. I, he's not trying to condemn this guy that he throws out of the church. 
to hell or tell him, you know, he can never make it back. He's just saying, look, and if you read on in the chapter, he says, put him out and hand him over to Satan. Put him in the world. Kick him out so that he can realize what it's like to be separated from this awesome new community that we're building. And so I hope you can see Paul's heart here, and I hope you can see that as a church we need to have that tough stance on our sin because that's the only way to create an alternative. If we're tolerant, if we take stuff in, if we just say, yeah, do whatever, and we don't call people to live up to what Jesus said to live up to, then we're no different. And so we're no longer a light. But Paul wants us to be a light. We're meant to be different. These disciples had been culturally compromised. And I thought about that a lot because I'm sure we all have. Right? We all have. It's hard to see because we're all there. You know? I went to, uh, several years ago, I remember going to the Philippines on a, a conference. And part of the conference, we took some clothes and medical supplies out to an impoverished neighborhood and handed them out. And that was fantastic. But I remember coming home from that and walking into Costco or Vons or something and going, oh, my gosh, we are so material here. We are so hung up on what we own and what we buy and how many choices we have. And I had just met all these little kids running around barefoot in a, essentially a city dump who were just happy as could be. I mean, sure, they would have loved to have had more comfortable environment around them. But, but we're, you know, we're, we're affected by our culture and uh, materialism is one of those things, and sin and our tolerance of sexual sin is one of those things. And we need to be open to seeing that. Paul says we need to be different as a church. Let's keep going in this chapter. Verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world that are immoral or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. And then down in verse 12, what business... (laughs) Yeah, right, he gets it. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. You know, Paul says something remarkable here. Because every religious tendency we have inside us is to condemn those outside the church. Right? To point our finger and shake our fist and say, this world is going to heck in a handbasket. Right? And we get judgmental. And Paul says, that's not my business. Those people aren't in our community. I'm judging our community. I'm calling our community higher. And so that helps me because I don't want to be that religious guy who's always looking down his nose at the people around me. I don't think you do either, right? But we don't know what to do with these convictions that we have. Paul says, that's not really our business. We need to show people this alternative. We need to show them the light. We need to show them what God says about it so it can lift them up, not to condemn them, not to judge them, not to put them in a a different camp, you know, some condemned circle in the Venn diagram. (laughs) We need to call them higher. We need to show them there is an alternative. And so Paul is strict on sin. He's strict on these things, not because... He's down on people, and he wants to lord it over them, but because we are trying to create something absolutely better here, something with a high standard. And he says it's not our business to judge the world. We need to create an alternative culture. And so how do we do that? How do we create an alternative culture, especially in a sinful world? Right? We've got to start with us. Right? You've got to start with yourself. Right? If you're not living a righteous life, How can we possibly preach that such a thing exists 
and is available. How can we do that? You know, I, I remember first coming to the church, and let me just share a couple of examples of this. When I first came to church, I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college at the University of Colorado. Uh, go Buffs, come on. There you go. Um, I'd come from a worldly high school in Palos Verdes where, you know, just about anything was available and just about anything was done. And that was the culture I grew up in. And so I, I got to the University of Colorado and, uh, you know, on my mind, I had had a girlfriend in high school and we had didn't have a pure relationship at all. And we broke up when I went off to college. And so I make college as a freshman. And what, you know, what are freshman boys doing in their first semester of college? They're looking for girls. Right. So that's what I was doing. And we were going to the pubs and we were going to the to the frat houses. And, you know, that's just what that's just what you do. And I remember thinking, wow, is this all there is? In fact, I went to one uh, one uh, frat house party and it just felt so plastic that I, I did an experiment. I'm an engineer. I do experiments. So that's what I did. So I, I, I said I came that night and I introduced myself. I'm Andy I'm from L.A., blah, blah, blah. And then the next night I came back to the very same party as Jim Slade from Beaumont, Texas. I don't know where I came up with that, but I did. And nobody knew. Nobody called. Nobody said, no, you're here last night. Your name's Andy. Nobody knew. It was just plastic. Right. It was fake relationships. It was fake fun. And I began to think, you know, this is not what we need to be. And so when I got invited to church and I found people my age, cool guys, I I grew up with four sisters. I had no brothers. So I was, you know, I was like, brothers, men, these guys can be my. This is awesome. And I remember just the joy and just the pleasure at having relationships that weren't about drinking and girls. I remember having relationships with young ladies, women, who, who I didn't even think about except as great friends. And I remember feeling like I have found a gold mine, a treasure. This is so different. This is what I want. And despite what young people say, that is what they want. They do not want the sexual world. They do not want that. It hurts. It's painful. It demoralizes you. And it brings you down. And not just young people, older people, right? This is what we want. We want pure relationships. We want intimacy on a righteous level where we can be close to people and be known and know them. And so this is, I remember just thinking that that was the one thing that converted me. If anything converted me, of course, the love of Christ was a big part of that. But I just remember thinking, I have found, who knows about this? How great is this? It was that alternate city. Let me give you another example. I remember uh, Allie's here this morning. Allie's my daughter. She got married uh, three years ago. And actually, Kyle's back. I should introduce Kyle. <laughs> Kyle is my son. He uh, also graduated at the University of Colorado. Go Buffs. Um, but Kyle had been, has been away for, and a lot of you guys haven't met him yet. A lot of you he grew up with, so you do know him. But uh, meet Kyle. He's a great guy. Glad to have you back. Welcome. Um, where was I going? Allie's wedding. That's what I was saying. I remember that wedding and some of you were there and it was a glorious day and it was beautiful and it was a, you know, perfect setting and all that stuff. And I remember, um, several, watching several of the young ladies. Some, my nieces were there. They're from Florida. They're high school age or middle school age. And they were just wide eyed. They were just watching the bride and the groom, and it was just a perfect day because it wasn't one of those weddings where you just go, 
Yeah, the white dress doesn't really mean anything here. It meant something for, for her. And it was inspiring to these young ladies. And my sister and her husband, who are believers and, and very involved in their church, they, they just came out and they said, we're so glad to be here to, to let our kids see that it can be done this way, that it's possible. We had another uh, guest there who's from Europe, one of uh, Karina's relatives from Europe was there. And she's uh, our age and, and kind of grew up in that more liberal society that, that Europe has become. And she was just flabbergasted that uh, my daughter and her, and her husband-to-be at the time uh, hadn't been together physically. They'd been pure in their relationship. She just couldn't believe that that was possible. She couldn't believe that we could have those kind of hopes. She was amazed. She was going through some tough stuff in her own marriage. And I remember she said something like, this is the best day of my life. Coming here was the best decision I have ever made. Because it restored hope. It restored there's something good in this world. There's something that we can live for, that we can believe in. And so I share all that not to say how great my kids are, although I think they're great, or how great my freshman college year was. It had a lot of downside. <laughs> but I just, I, I just think this is what we want to create. This is what we want to bring people to. This is what the world is hungry for, dying for. And the Lord knows this. Jesus died for this. Jesus died to take away the shame and the guilt and to let everybody get washed anew and start over. And so when Paul is tough on sin and when our church takes certain stands on things, it's for this reason. It's not to to be better, to be morally superior. It's to create this environment where... The grace of God can prosper, where people's hearts can heal, where we can all dream about how great our lives in the kingdom can be. Amen? Amen. One commentator, let me just read this quote. One commentator wrote, Christians will fall prey to the world's views of sex unless we create a community, an alternative city. In this alternative city, singles enjoy their kingdom mission and practice sexual abstinence joyfully. They live in community with Christian families who do not make an idol out of family. We'll talk more about that. Or make singles feel abnormal. One of the reasons it's hard to practice the discipline of sex-free romantic involvement is that we don't have a sufficiently large community of people creating this alternative city. That's what we're about. We're, we need to create this city. We have an obligation in the South Bay to create a community like this that draws people in, that gives people an alternative. All right, let's move on to chapter 6. So how we live either affirms or contradicts what we say, right? And so Paul in this church in chapter 6, he's going to start talking about ethics, about what's right and wrong, how we treat each other. And he starts the chapter talking about lawsuits. And we're not going to get into lawsuits today. I'm going to ignore that pretty much. But, but it's, it's part and parcel of the whole thing. When you think about Paul's trying to build a community that's different. And so he says, if you guys have disagreements with each other, whether business disagreements or other kinds of, you know, civil or even maybe criminal disagreements with each other, then isn't there a better way to solve it than just taking each other to court and beating each other up in court? Isn't it better that we can do that as a community? And so that's what that part's about. But on the, in the context of that, this verse comes up. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 
Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So on the heels of this discussion about how destructive it can be to a community to sue each other in court, he, he, he throws out this list of sins. And we might react to that list of sins, right? We're like, there he goes again, condemning people for what they're doing with their life. This is Paul's list of sins. And the, and the point of this list isn't to, to create some uh, message about how to get into heaven or how to not get into heaven. Right? His point is, we've got to be a community where this kind of stuff is in the past. Right? No shame. We've all got sin. But it's in the past. It's part of what we were. We've been called to something higher. We've been called to something greater. It's typical for Christians, or anybody in the world, to think of ethics, especially sexual ethics, in purely individualistic terms. It's personal. It's my private life. Get out of my bedroom. And yet Paul says, no, we're in this together. We're a community together. Our Western society has evolved where the individual is paramount over the community, over the value, especially when it comes to our sexual choices. That's not the right way to read the scripture. Commentator Richard Hayes writes this about this passage. He says, this passage has provided the launching pad for countless moralistic sermons that decry the types of sinners listed here. But in fact, the concern of the passage as a whole is to call the Corinthians to act as a community and to assert, listen to this, to assert the transformed identity of the baptized. The Corinthians are to stop seeing themselves as participants in the normal social and economic structures of their city and to imagine themselves as members of the spiritual people of God acting corporately in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the kingdom of God. Paul is seeking to re-socialize them into a new way of doing business, developing a new community consciousness. So I like all that educational academic stuff. But did you get the point? That the point of the passage is to, for, the, for the baptized to affirm their convictions in how they live and how they treat one another. Hayes notes, Paul is calling the church not to just individual moral behavior, but to be a kingdom community in which the world's values do not hold. He's establishing an ethic that we need to adhere to, to be part of his community. So how do we feel about that? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about opening your life up like that? How do you feel about letting other people in? about people knowing what's going on in your mind, in your heart, about not having secrets. That's a big step. That's a big step. You know, our, our world today is so... I mean, we, of course, I can talk about social media all day long, um, but we hide behind that, right? People hide behind that. Um, people hide behind just being quiet, just not talking, just not being open. 
with their lives. Paul says we can't build community that way. We can't be an alternative city that way. We're just playing church if we're not being open and getting honest about this stuff in our lives. Not because anybody needs to get beat down or be made, be made to feel inferior, but because we need to create this alternative that really is an alternative. Not just you know, some club that acts good, but behind closed doors is something else. Guys, it's, 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 it's exciting to think about who we can be as a body, who we can be as a community. We can be that group of people that somebody walks in here and goes, wow, something's really different here. They love each other. Wow, they're open with each other. Wow, they get together and talk about their lives, and that guy will listen to that guy tell him that you need to stop doing that without blowing up, without acting like it's none of your business. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to take care of each other like this. I mean, Satan isn't going to leave us alone just because we got baptized, right? He's after us all the time. We need this kind of help. We're, stre- we're in an environment where we are barraged with messages about being an individual, doing whatever you want, and doing anything you want. We need each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to get in each other's lives. We've been talking about... Uh, what we call our discipling relationships. Not just meeting together and watching TV or, you know, going to a local new grill in town or whatever, but really opening up, really sharing with each other what's going on so that we can get the kind of help we need so we can protect ourselves from the schemes of Satan, right, which we know are insidious and hard to see from our own perspective. We've got to have these kind of relationships. Paul is trying to build a community. Let's keep reading. Look what he says in verse 12. Paul quotes them. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Part of belonging to a new community makes us look beyond what's good for me. We've got to ask the question, what's good for us? What's good for us? Here again, our individualism is challenged, um, and we struggle. You know, people cringe. Our society would cringe to hear me say that, right? <laughs> Who are you to say that this sin or that sin is a sin? I feel that way. I was, excuse me, born that way. Right? And that's the way, this, that's the message society has created. That it's okay. That anything we do is okay. We're going to talk in a minute just about some of the ways, the false views of sex and, and romantic relationships that pervade our society. But, but we've got to get this on straight. That as individuals, we have freedoms. God, God will let you do whatever you want. You know, God... If you choose to be a Christian, if you choose to come into that covenant with him, then no, that changes. But before that, you can do whatever you want. That's why we don't judge them. Paul says, that's none of my business. They do what they want. I'd like to help them because I think God's got a much better alternative, but they do what they want. But in the church, in, in that covenant with God, he says, no, we've got to do something different. God gives everyone their free will. 
but not everything is beneficial. Think about your life. Think about those things that you're tempted with. Think about maybe things you've done. Permissible? Gray area? Maybe? But put it in this light. Is it beneficial? Is this going to help me? Is this going to help us? Are we going to build that community if I act like this, if I participate in that sin? Is it beneficial? That's the question we should be asking. Not can I do it? Who says I can't do it? Don't let me, I can do what I don't tell me what I can't do. No. Is it beneficial? Is it really good for you? That's the question we should be asking. And we've got to trust God enough to know that he knows what's beneficial for us, right? He made us. He built us. He designed us. He knows. He knows. The world doesn't know. The world's looking for money or fame or something from you. So they'll tell you whatever you want to hear. But God knows what's beneficial for us. Look in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know, I talked about some of these false views of sex that our society has. And the media will try and tell you that these are brand new ideas, that these have never been thought before, and we should really explore them and look into them. But the truth is they're not. The truth is they're old ideas. One of the most ancient views attributed to Plato, the philosopher, he was like a long time ago, right? I don't know. Somebody tell me the year. One of you classics majors, tell me the year that he... Let's just say it's a long time ago. In that view, the flesh was inferior to the spirit. Right? You remember that? Maybe we read a little bit about that in the Gnostics, and that was kind of a continuation of that thinking. But the flesh is inferior to the spirit. And so things associated with the flesh were animalistic and crude and dark and to be avoided. And because sex was a physical act, it was considered crude and dark and, and to be avoided, except as necessary to procreate the human race. Unfortunately, that's what most of the world thinks the church's belief is. Right? Because where do you hear that message? church. (laughs) Don't do it. Bad. Church, right? And so we equate that view, that false view. But the Bible teaches that sex is actually good. In fact, I think it was about man and woman, the creation of man and woman and them being together that God said it was very good. So we have nothing to fear about that relationship in, in God's proper context. It's very good. There's another view, the realist view, that Sex is just an appetite of the flesh, just like any other bodily appetite. And so as long as you feed it responsibly and don't do anything dangerous, it's okay. This is kind of how we get taught in public school with sex education, right? Here are the facts. Here are the parts. Here's how it works. Here's the consequences. Here's the dangers. So just be careful, but do whatever you want. Just be careful. Just be safe. It's a realistic view. And, and people think it's modern and it's scientific and it's neutral, but it's not any of those things. It's an ancient view. It's an ancient view. It's been around since the ancient, the Roman times, the Greek times. There's a romantic view, and this is the view that probably has captured our country more than anything. Whereas the Hellenists, the Plato people, they thought the evil was in the physical, the Romanticists find the evil in the cultural. 
They thought that human beings in their unspoiled original state were brimming with natural goodness and creativity. (laughs) And it's just that evil culture, that bad teaching we got from our parents or our church or our nanny or whoever it was that stifled our natural goodness and creativity. And so they throw off any kind of teaching. Goodness is better achieved by liberating these basic primal instincts because they then in and of themselves are pure. You know, I think it was Freud. I'm not, I, rem- I took a psychology class. I think I read about Freud. I think that was his deal, right? That the id, that in- internal part of us, those primal urges, were all good and messed up by the superego that was clamped on us by society, made us constrained. These aren't new ideas. And we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see how, no, these, this is a false idea too. The Bible teaches that the basic premise of our sexual relationship with somebody is not about personal fulfillment. That's a hard one. Our society teaches it is about personal fulfillment. You have a right to it. In fact, your right is so strong that if anybody even breathes a word that you may not have a right to it, they're a bigot and they're a hater. Maybe you felt that. I felt that. And I'm not saying that to judge and shake my fist. I'm just saying, look, we've got to resist that. That's a false teaching. That is a lie from the devil. So what's the biblical view of sex? So contrary to that animalistic passion view, God says sex is actually sacred. It's sacred because it unites and it creates. There's no, there's no, uh, it's not inconsequential that humans are created through this act. It is a sacred act. Um, it's how God creates family and community. That's why it's so important. Some of you, it's created big families, almost your own community. <laughs> right? I'm not going to point at anybody, but I know they're sitting kind of over there somewhere, so... <laughs> We're all just envious, bro. We're all, we're all just envious. We'd love to have a lot. It's highlighted by this elevation. Uh, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the next point, but I just want to recognize that Christianity identifies singleness as a glorious state. No other, think about this, no other religion does. Judaism, it was almost criminal to be a male, an adult male of age and not be married. It was considered sin. Right? I don't know that much about Islam, but based on the way that they are repopulating the world, I would say it's a big part of what they believe. But Christianity, Paul lifts up singleness as an intentional surrender of the right to a married sexual relationship in order to build his kingdom. What a glorious thing. Contrary to the physical view, that that realist view, God's sex is sacred because it delights not just physically, but emotionally and socially and spiritually. It fulfills. It's part of a fulfillment that we have as people. The coming together of lovers for a wedding is one of our strongest metaphors in the scripture for the fulfillment of our relationship with God. And so it's not just realistic, scientific, neutral. No, it's a glorious thing. It's a sacred thing because of that. And contrary to that romantic view, 
God shows sex is sacred because it's an expression of a covenant. Not just personal fulfillment, but a binding promise to give yourself away. And those of you know, those of you who've been there in those kind of relationships know that there is no better way to be fulfilled than when you're giving yourself away to somebody else. Somebody sent me something yesterday. I think Mark Steberg sent me something about, um, it, was a, it was a poster or something he saw that said, um, nobody ever said, well, there's a waste of my time after serving the needy. Right? We all walk away from, I, I butchered that, but you get what I'm saying. They, we all walk away from those times, we all walk away from those times going, wow, I feel so good. I just gave and I feel great. And so God knows that our love and our sexual relationship is built around giving ourselves away, not about what we can get in our personal fulfillment. He talks a little bit about prostitution in this, in this verse. And we kind of recoil at prostitution, right? We go, oh, yeah, that's bad. We know that's bad. And yet, when we take this romantic view, when it's all about personal fulfillment, I need to get what I need to get. I should be able to get what I should be able to get. Isn't it the same transaction as prostitution, just without the cash? Isn't it just the same thing? We've got to have a conviction about that, that our relationship, our sexual relationships, are founded in giving ourselves away. Whole body giving ourselves away. When we give our bodies away to something, our heart and our emotions and our finances and our spiritual life aren't ready to do, it's, as some people call it, a monstrosity. It just tears us apart because it's not the right way to live. All right, let's move on to chapter 7. So that's all the context for chapter 7 in marriage and divorce and remarriage and all that. That's important to know, right? Because... If we started a conversation and say, well, can I get remarried if I've been divorced? And, and somebody said no, you're like, well, who are you to tell me? And I could even stand up here as a, as a leader in the church and say, well, we allow this and we don't allow that. And you're like, well, okay, I'll just go find somewhere else. Or who are you to tell me or whatever. And yet Paul wants you to know all that other stuff so that you can make good decisions about how you choose your sexual relationships and when you choose your sexual relationships. Paul goes from theory in these passages we've just read. It's not super theoretical. I've addressed it as theoretical. And now he gets into these practical questions the Corinthians have written to him about. Um, He starts there in the first verse, you know, now about matters that you wrote about. So we know he's answering questions that they've sent. Um, I'd like to read this whole chapter, but I know I don't have time. So I'd like you to read this chapter. Okay, but let me summarize this chapter in verse 35. Paul says, I am saying this, all that he's about to say, for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Do we trust that? Do we trust that? Because some of this stuff I'm about to say may be hard for you. Maybe against your desires. Maybe contrary to what you really think you want. And Paul says, I'm saying this not to restrict you, but because I'm concerned for you. I want you to have a right and devoted relationship to the Lord. So three questions he answers here, at least three in this chapter. Is it better to be married or to be single? I'm not asking. It's rhetorical. Okay, don't raise your hand. (laughs) 
especially you married people. Don't, don't be raising your hand on this one, all right? You're going to have a long talk on the way home if you say anything you don't want to say here. Is it better to be married or single? Paul says both are good. In fact, both are acceptable. And if you had to press him on it, he would say, I'm going to say single is a little bit better. That's amazing. Like I said before, it's the only religion that exalts singleness. You know, I, I was, uh, I'm fairly new at my job. I was talking to one of the young ladies I work with earlier this week, and she was talking about a vacation. I said, oh, do you have a family? And she goes, she goes thanks for making me feel bad about myself. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I just meant, do you have kids? And are you going to go on vacation with your kids? But, but this is how her view of herself, because she wasn't married yet. And our society propagates that view, doesn't it? I mean, in certain parts of our society. Some, 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 you know, maybe our strongest urban centers, it's all about being single and playing the field and doing all that kind of stuff. But, but kind of in the, in the highways and the byways of our land, if you're, if you're single, then somehow you failed that's not true. Paul says that's absolutely not true. In fact, Paul says, if you can stay single, good for you. If you can do it for the Lord, awesome. Because I build up the kingdom through marriages and families, and I especially build up the kingdom by people who are willing to forsake that to serve me wholeheartedly, without distraction. They are both good. So if you're a single in our fellowship, I applaud you. Congratulations. And as a married person, I value what you bring to the kingdom. I value your perspective. I value your wholeheartedness to be true to the scriptures here, to not give in to the society, to help me create that alternate city that draws people in. Marriage, it says, Paul says, are divided. Married folks are divided. They have two covenants. They have a covenant to God and they have a covenant to their spouse. And they don't always get along with each other. I mean the covenants. Well, and, and occasionally the husband and wife may have a problem too. But the singles build their kingdom through the opportunities created by their single covenant. And they're to be lifted up. They're both good. They're both good. The next question, can I change my status if I don't like it? Read what it says. Read what it says. The answer is yes and no. Right? But first of all, he says, think about why you want to change it. He gives two examples. He gives an example of circumcision, which is weird to us, but think of it as ethnicity. Think of it as your ethnic or religious background, your heritage. And then he also gives an example of slavery, your economic status. He says, God has called you into his kingdom when he called you for a reason. Were you a slave? Don't try and not be one. I mean, if you can get your freedom, go for it. But don't let that hang you up. Were you circumcised? Were you of the Jewish people? Don't try not to be Jewish. Don't let it hang you up. We let a lot of things hang us up. We let singlehood maybe hang us up. We let marriage hang us up. Paul says, you were called when you were called for a reason. So stay there. Think about why he called you when you're there. Now, it doesn't mean you have to stay single all the time. If you find somebody, you know, getting married is great. If you're married when he calls you, it doesn't mean that you can just leave. And that's what they were struggling. They're like, well, if it's more spiritual to be single, shouldn't I just leave my spouse? Shouldn't we get divorced and so I can be single? Paul says, no. 
(laughs) Sorry, Paul says, no, you're stuck with that guy. But he says there are cases where it's allowed. If your spouse is an unbeliever and he leaves or she leaves, you're not bound. You're not bound. Paul also says if you're two disciples and you get divorced, maybe that happens. But he says you can't get remarried until you reconcile and get remarried to that spouse. That's how it is for believers. These are some, these are some things that our society bristles at. Right? And maybe, maybe people in this room are bristling at this. Now, that's fine. That's, that's the scripture. That's what it says. Um, and we're not trying to be judgmental or harsh about that, but it all ties back into this. God is trying to create this community that's different. And I know that if we took divorce away as an option or we made it harder, that a lot more people would get reconciled. When you just close that back door, and let me just encourage you, if you're married and you're part of the church here, you made that covenant with the Lord, close the back door. Throw the word out. It's not an option. It shouldn't be an option. It's not something you talk about. Because it's, it's, it goes nowhere. All it does is create disunity. It just makes the problem worse. So deal with the problem like you've got to deal with the problem. And jump in and get help. There's plenty of people who can help. In our age, we've got a lot of great, even professional counselors that can help with this kind of thing. Singleness is exalted. I've got to rush through the rest of this. Divorce permitted in some cases. I talked about that. Remarriage. Your options are limited, Paul says. You can get remarried to your divorced husband or wife, reconcile to them. If you're a widow or widower, you can get married, but you need to marry a Christian, he says. So think about that. Why do you want to make the change you want to make? Paul does give some lines. He does draw some lines for us, and it's all part of building that community. Last question. How do I make this kind of decision? What should be my highest consideration? He says, Paul says in this passage, our time is short. In other words, our lives here are temporary. We all remember the lesson Steve did a while back. I still have my string with a little red end on it, right? Our time here is short. So make decisions based on the long view. Make decisions based on where you're going to end up. It's not about seeking our own personal fulfillment. It's about building a community that can represent God in the world and be a, be a place of refuge for people caught up in these sins who are looking to get out. This is a powerful bit of teaching here that is, is so appropriate to us, right? We live in a world where, wow, we are just inundated with all kinds of conflicting sexual messages and very little responsibility to any higher authority than our own personal desires. And Paul says, I want to liberate you from that enslavement. I want to liberate you from being a slave to your own desires, your own sins. I want to give you something better. Tough topic. I appreciate the professionals giving it to me, the amateur here. I kind of know why they do that now. So, we wrote, actually, the elders wrote a paper about divorce and remarriage. If you have real particular questions or want to know, happy to share that with you. I think it's eight or ten pages. It's, it's a long discussion, it's not an easy answer. And like I said at the beginning, I'm not trying to make light of anybody who's been through those difficult, very difficult times. Because I know it's devastating. But Paul says, I have something, God has something better for us. And that's the community we want to build. And those things are things that we were, but we're not anymore. We're going to transition into a time where we're going to take communion. Uh, Twice in this passage, 
Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. When we take our communion, we remind ourselves, we refresh this covenant that we've, we've made with God. We think about the sins we've been forgiven of. We think about the things we're tempted with, even right now. We look at all those things in light of what the Savior has done for us on the cross. Our personal, intimate, sexual lives, even, God says are mine. You were bought at a price. When you, when you said Jesus is Lord, when you submitted yourself to the will of God, for all the glory that brings, there is a cost. Of course, the cost isn't to restrict us, but it's for our own good. So we take communion now as a reminder, as a refresher of that covenant. Where we think about what that means, what he did, the cost that he paid, and how we can be free from those things that entangle us. Brothers and sisters, Paul's got a great lesson here. As we take communion this morning, I pray that you'll think about not what you can't do, but the alternative that God has waiting for us. And be reminded through this time of renewing our covenant with the Savior how much he loves us and how much he wants to give to us. Amen? Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the power of these scriptures because they absolutely confront the thinking in our world today. And Father, we know that our hearts are constantly barraged with false messages about our choices, our rights, what we should be allowed to do. And yet, Father, you call us back to something that is better and higher and resounding with your love and the fulfillment you want to give us in our lives. God, as we take communion right now, I pray that we would Taste your love for us as we eat this bread and drink from this cup. I pray that we would be reminded of how visceral your love can be for us. How it can be not just a theory in our heads, but we can feel the warmth of your Holy Spirit, the, the, the camaraderie of our fellow brothers and sisters, that we can be reminded of how much we've been forgiven from and freed from, things that are no longer a part of our identity. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for always, always, always having our best in mind. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.